Welcome to this episode of Starving for Insight. I'm super excited to have April Dunford joining us today. This is going to be the epitome of the episode where I try to shut up as much as possible and let her talk. She's hilarious. She's launched over 16 different products to market to date, I believe, worked at a bunch of startups and big companies as well. And she's positioning extraordinaire. She's currently CEO of Ambient Strategy, but she's best known by her name, April Dunford, and I'm sure you've heard of her. So April, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you're working on these days? Hey, Ashley, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, Yeah, you know, my background is mainly as a repeat VP of marketing at a set of different startups. But um, more recently, I've been working as a consultant, my focus really is on positioning, and more sort of the strategic side of market strategy, how you define a market, how you go after it, how you intend to win it. Yeah, so that's, that's me. Okay, April is being very humble. Um, I'm very humble here. She's uh, quite, quite, quite accomplished. And as a standard for this show, I give everyone a little frequently asked questions. And I include as an example of the type of thing I want to talk about, April's answer on Growth Hackers uh, AMA about a certain story that we're going to get into right now, I think. And everyone's like, oh, no, damn you, April Dunford. And we set the bar so high. So I had to have April on the show to actually so you could hear the story from from herself. And it will come up way better audio. You know what? It helps to be it helps to be old. Like you get better stories when you've been doing stuff for a long time. And so there's you know, there's more chance for interesting stories to accumulate. You are but, not old. But I, yeah. We're not we're not gonna get into that because it's a common question. You're always as a female in tech, you're often asked what your age is, whether you are it's young so or not or old, it doesn't matter. So we're not gonna talk about age and you are not old. But I do want to hear this story because, again, you've worked on 16 different products and brought them to market. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. So so the, the growth hacker story was a fun one because I often use it as an example of, of why deep customer understanding really matters. So the example is I got hired to be the vice president of marketing for a company. And the company is quite big, about 80 million revenue. And the target market was a mid-sized manufacturing companies. So essentially um, these manufacturing companies that did things like auto parts or food manufacturing or uh, cardboard, I mean, they were a really diverse set. And so I took over the team. We had a very, very mature digital marketing set of things already going on. Um, We were like power Marketo users. We had a very, very big opted-in email list uh, that as far as we could tell in terms of North America, we had at least two contact points in every mid-sized manufacturer in the entire um, in the entire continent. And so we were doing really amazing email marketing. We had a bunch of content running, we had a blog, we were doing webinars, we did trade shows. So the thing was all running a well-oiled machine, but you know, we're always trying to get better. So we're, we're looking at the results of this and we identified a segment that never responded to anything that we did. And they were largely auto parts manufacturers. There was a cluster of them in Michigan, which is where a lot of auto parts manufacturing is. And they just never did anything. Like we tried outbound calling campaigns that we couldn't get through to them on the phone. They never opened our email. They never talked to us at a trade show. They never consumed any of our content. It was this great mystery. Who are these people and why is it that they don't care about anything we have to say? And so uh, I was going to a trade show in Michigan and I thought, you know what? I'm actually going to get my car and I'm going to drive over and I'm going to knock on the door and I'm going to see if I can talk to any of these people. So I get my car and I drive out and it and I I go around and I manage to talk to like five or six of these guys. And it turns out they're all awesome. And not only that, they're all the same person. Like, so we're generally selling to the owner of the manufacturing plant because they're kind of small. And so you pull up, there's a little manufacturing plant in the middle of nowhere. 
there's a car parked out front and it's a Cadillac and that's the owner's car and it's right beside the door. And you go in and you say, hey, I'd really like to talk to Mike so-and-so. And And there's a little old lady at reception and her job is to make sure you don't talk to Mike (laughs) so-and-so. And but then you sweet talk her a little bit and you're, you know, you're probably, I'm I'm nice. You know, I'm just in town. I just want to ask him some questions. So then he comes out, he's great. Next thing you know, you're getting the tour of the plan. Everything's awesome. So I have these conversations with these guys and I say, look, we sell software to guys like you and I'm trying to figure out, you know, guys like you never respond to any of my stuff. So like, do you ever go to a trade show? No. Do you ever read email? No, actually. He says, I don't even have a computer in my office. You know, I have Marlene out front and she reads the email. And if it looks like a sales pitch, I tell her to delete it. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I can see how email is not going to work for you. And then I said, well, what about like a newsletter or you do? And he's looking at me all squinty eyed, like, no, April, I don't do any of these digital things. And I'm like, well, what about like paper things. You get a magazine, you get anything. And and it's just like, nope, 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 nope. And I'm like, how do you ever find out about anything new? And he says, well, I got a couple of buddies that work in the industry. We talk about stuff sometimes, but you know, I'm kind of not into new stuff. And these guys are all older too, right? They're like 70 years old for the most part. And so I do a bunch of these meetings and after like four or five of them, I'm like, well, I know if I sent a sales rep to go and do what I'm doing right now, we could sell this guy something. But I can't afford that. My lifetime value of the product is not high enough to have me have sales reps on the road. We were telesales only. And and there wasn't enough of them to justify having a rep to do just that. So I thought, you know what? I, I give up. I can't sell these folks stuff. I'm literally going to have to wait till they die and their sons take over. I don't know what. <laughs> and, and then we're going to sell these dudes some stuff. So anyways, I have one more meeting on this chain of meetings. And at this point, I'm kind of relaxed and I'm just enjoying the conversation because I've decided I can't tell them anything. And so I'm in with the last guy and and these guys are great. So we're shooting the shit. We're sitting in the guy's office and, you know, and I'm going through my normal stuff and he's saying, nope, nope, nope. And while we're talking, we're kind of trying to wrap stuff up. And while we're talking, there's this noise in the corner. It's like, And I'm like, it's like a fan or something. And we both stop. And I'm like, what's that noise? And he says, I have no idea. And we start looking around the room. And finally, he walks over to the corner. And he's got like a stack of papers and stuff. And he picks up the stack of papers. And underneath there, there's a fax machine. And he's getting a fax. (laughs) And I'm like, wow. And we stop the conversation. He pulls a piece of paper out of this fax machine. He holds it up and he reads it and he's got this like big, big smile on his face. Like this is the greatest thing that's happened to him all day. He's got this fax. So he, so he reads the facts and I was like, holy cow, man. I, like, do you get a lot of faxes? And he says, oh man, I haven't got one of these in years. This is great. And in my mind, I was like, oh, I gotcha. <laughs> so I get the car and I go back and I get on the plane and fly home. And I got this team. I've got like five or six people on my team and, and literally everybody's 24. And I'm like, all right, kids, I went away to Michigan and I came back with this great idea. We're going to run a fax campaign. And I had this gal who's my Marketo admin and she's amazing. And she looked at me and she's got this big smile on her face. She's like, that's awesome. What's a fax? <laughs> She doesn't even know what it is. So we're like, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go do this fax campaign. So first we gotta find a fax machine. So I like I gotta go to my CEO and I'm like, hey, uh anybody like you guys have a fax machine? And he's looking at me sideways, like, why are you asking me that question? I'm like, no, no reason, no reason. We're <laughs> just like you know, just trying some stuff out. So we find this fax machine, we can't figure out how to plug it into the wall. Like we're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Like, we're like, what is this dinosaur thing? Anyways, we're all laughing our heads off and we decide we're going to do this campaign. And so we run this campaign and the campaign is basically we're going to fax these guys and we're going to make fun of the fact that we're faxing them. So we fax these guys and we have this campaign and the campaign is like, is your ERP software older than this fax machine? Maybe you want to talk to us. <laughs> so, and we're going to fax them something and then we're going to get their attention and then we're going to follow it up with a call and we're going to hope that that's enough to bust through. So we run this thing and, you know, and everybody's like, man, this is nuts. We are going to get zero with this campaign. Nothing is going to happen with this campaign. But... 
hilariously, uh, we run this thing and it totally works. Like it totally, totally works. My inside salespeople are killing themselves laughing. They're like, I don't know what you did to butter that guy up, but that guy's totally wanting to talk to me once I call him on the phone. He's like, used to be, I call these people and their admins block me. And I can hear the guy in the background laughing. Ah, ha, ha, get that guy on the phone. <laughs> We were, we were tracking the thing in these lead reports and uh, I was too scared to tell my CEO that we were running a fax campaign because I thought it was going to be bad for my digital cred, you know, and, and so I just called it the, the, the F program. <laughs> it was like the campaign that dare not speak its name. Anyways, that sucker drove millions of dollars of revenue. It was crazy. We went and we hit all those guys and then we went back and we looked at a bunch of other segments where we had people that fit that profile. And we were like, you know what, we're going to try this on a whole bunch of people that don't respond to our stuff. And we ran that thing for two, three quarters. And it was by far my most successful uh, new customer acquisition campaign for those two, three quarters. It was crazy. It was just crazy. The point of this story though, is that People will come and ask me and they'll say, look, April, uh, should I do Facebook ads or should I invest in SEO? And my answer is always, I don't know, because I don't know your customers and I don't know what they do. And so the first step always has to be, you know, figure those people out. And then if you figure them out, you'll figure out how to reach them. And so, you know, I will never, ever, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, run a fax campaign again. But what it illustrates is that, you know, I never would have come up with that tactic if I hadn't been able to like drive around, lock eyes with these people, get inside their heads and say, okay, if I'm a 70 year old with, that doesn't do email and doesn't do any stuff, like how do I actually get their attention and convince them that there's a thing they need to learn about? And so in this case, it was five facts. The important thing is to understand who are your folks. You need to understand them deeply so that you can kind of crawl inside their skin and answer the question, what is the best way to reach these folks? What is the best way to get in front of them and convince them, hey, here's something that you need to pay attention to. Here's something that you need to look at. And so we get so hung up on tactics and channels, right? Chasing the shiny new. But sometimes, you know, there's really creative ways of getting in front of people that, you know, wouldn't work for us, but it works for them because of the way they are and their history and what they want to do. The first step is you really got to understand who your customers are. Once you understand that, then you can understand how to do some creative things to get in front of them. When you like, I just don't even need to say anything that was just so well said. I'm curious, like when you give people that advice, because I know people often, April gets like a thousand requests for coffees every week and she's super gracious and goes on a lot of coffees with people and is super helpful. And a lot of times they, you know, they ask you Google solvable problems. Yeah. Don't be saying that because I don't want any more people calling me saying, Hey, I just want to have a coffee. Like, honestly, it's a problem. I don't know. I need to do better time management on that stuff. That is true, but she is incredibly gracious and it helps a lot of people. <laughs> but from a outsider perspective, we you might tell her to cut down on her copies and it sounds like she's doing that. But those are like Google solvable problems. You kind of mentioned that. Like how do people receive that advice when you tell them, I don't know, go talk to your customers? What's the reaction? Yeah. You know, one thing that I think is really interesting is that, you know, again, we're digital people, right? So we like to think that everything has like an advanced digital solution to it. And so when I say to people, like, you really need to deeply understand your customers, their instant reaction to that is, oh, well, I'll just survey them. I'll do a survey. <laughs> and sometimes surveys are okay. Like I'm not knocking surveys, but if I had have surveyed the, 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 the manufacturers that I used in that example, I would have gotten nothing. Like I, I would literally would have gotten nothing because I'm not smart enough to say, Hey, if I sent you a fax, do you happen to have a fax machine in your office? Like I never would have figured that out. And so only, and so if, if what I'm looking for is like deeper insight, I really like to be having some regular conversations with customers. I mean, you're not always going to be able to get on a plane and see them face to face and sit in their offices. I mean, if you can, that's amazing. But even a phone conversation where you just get people talking is so much more interesting and useful and relevant than 
the things you can get out of a survey, particularly because, you know, the survey is only as good as the questions you're asking and you're not smart enough to ask the right questions or you don't know what you don't know. And even if you have long form answer things, I mean, some people just won't fill those out and they won't tell you anything that you don't know already. And so anyway, so when I tell people like you need, you really need to be talking to a bunch of customers. They think what, what they're going to do is run a survey. They'll make up some questions. They'll build a list. They'll hit everyone with the survey and they'll be done in five minutes. And it just doesn't work like that. Customer site doesn't. It's, it's a never ending journey and it's a never ending sort of ongoing conversation. Like you should be having a handful of conversations with customers every week and it never ends and you'll get smarter and smarter and smarter the more you do that. But it's work. Like you can't just say, oh, I'll just run a little survey once done. Like nothing, you know, there's some really easy questions you could answer that way. Like, do you prefer this versus this? Like, fine, run a survey. You don't need to call them to do that. But if you're really trying to get inside the head of somebody, you're not going to do that with, you know, five multiple choice questions. So when do you think it's important to get inside someone's head? Well, I, you know, I don't know. Like, they're, they're like here's the thing. We, you know, we were we were talking offline earlier about product intuition and what does that mean? And, you know, in my mind, product intuition is really is really something that you develop after you really get a bone deep understanding of your target segment. So you've had enough conversations that you understand this is what makes them tick. This is what they do and what they don't do. This is what they hate. Like these sorts of things drive them crazy. And, you know, it's so much deeper than just doing a persona exercise where we just write all this stuff down. It's, it's about having enough conversations that you can say, listen, my people, here's what they're like. (laughs) And it's, it's kind of a thing that you don't get right away. It takes time and you develop it. But then once you have it, because you've done 20, 30 conversations with customers, it starts feeling like this intuition. It starts feeling like, you know, you're talking about a new feature and you're like, oh man, my people aren't going to like that. Right. Or, oh man, my people are going to love that, but we got to make it work in this way. So it doesn't annoy them. And we can't forget about these four other things they do because it has nothing to do with our product, but it will intersect with us if we do this new thing. And all of that ends up feeling like gut feel, but it's informed gut feel. It's gut feel that is more likely to be correct and incorrect because it's based on this, you know, this underlying set of knowledge that you've built up over time about your customers. Do you think you can get that same understanding from quantitative data? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's part of it. It's part of it. But, and I certainly wouldn't say, oh, forget about quantitative data as long as you're having some conversations once in a while. No, because, you know, the other thing is that people lie about things like, you know, re- you know, revenue metrics, for example, are something that everybody lies about. <laughs> like we lie about it. Our customers lie about it. Everybody lies about it. Um, pricing and things like that. Like if you ask a customer what they pay for something, oh, they'll tell you way less than what they actually paid. So, you know, quantitative data is important in a lot of different ways, right? To see how your customers are behaving versus how they say they behave, because sometimes there's a disconnect there. But, you know, all the things need to come together to form a, a, a picture. But my biggest advice, particularly to startups that, want to do they they want to do everything quantitative and they're all about the numbers and i think they're missing out on this whole other piece of the picture by just looking at the numbers and just running surveys and just you know treating this like a spreadsheet exercise there's people on the other end of this thing and those people are hard to figure out by just looking at the spreadsheet i think that's so well said and what about, you know, bigger companies? You've worked at your fair share of those companies as well. How have you been able to do this type of work in those companies? Yeah, big companies are funny. Like, you know, I find what's interesting is at big companies, there's all often a pushback against talking to customers because sales has a lot of power and sales, you know, some of them have had bad experiences with marketing people 
tagging along on a sales call and then saying something stupid that the salesperson perceives is going to mess up their deal. And so sometimes you actually have to fight to talk to customers. And, and that's disappointing. Um, your sales team is often a great source of insight if you uh, have a good rapport with your sales team and you can figure out how to ask them the right questions. But I was thinking about a, I was thinking about a story recently where I worked for a startup. We got acquired by a big, big company in the Valley. This was years and years ago. The company was called Seaball. At the time, they're the big CRM company before Salesforce was anything. Salesforce was around then, but uh, they weren't very big. They certainly weren't selling to enterprise customers. So Siebel was the giant in the market for enterprise CRM at the time with 9,000 employees, 2 billion revenue. And so I ran marketing for like post acquisition. I was the head of marketing for um, a division of that, which was focused on financial services. That was about 800 million revenue out of 2 billion. So I was like the big division, but there were five divisions. And so I get this job, I inherit this new team, I inherit a whole bunch of campaigns and shit that are already running. And and we have to have this, like every couple of weeks, we have a meeting with our boss, all the heads of marketing for all the divisions. So we go in and we have this meeting every week. And, and uh, so I have to pull together this big report, how are all my campaigns doing versus my target? So the first, uh, you know, I'm there for two weeks, I pull the report and then the report is not good. Like, uh, how are the campaigns doing? They're doing shit, actually. <laughs> I'm not making my target on anything. And so, um, you know, I'm new girl, so that's okay. I'm not responsible for any of this mess yet. Oh, look at this, love it. Right. So, you know, so anyway, so we go in and the, 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 you know, my boss is there and he's like, so, you know, we got to go around the table and, and present how the thing's doing. So two or three people go before me and, and they got, they got shit results too. They're like, everything's bad. And, and my boss, Bruce, he says, well, I don't get it. Like, why are they so bad? And the first guy goes and he says, oh, it's bad because the economy's bad. And it's true. This was like uh, 2000 and economy was pretty soft. Big enterprises in particular were slowing down on purchasing software. And so everybody said, yo, it's bad because the economy's bad. It's not us, it's the economy. And so two people went and did that. And anyways, and I had to do mine. So I showed all my stuff and it was crap too. And he says, well, why? And I said, well, I don't know. I've only been here two weeks. I have no clue why, but you know, maybe it's this economy thing. I don't know. I'm going to try to figure it out. So I go back and I'm digging through all the numbers and it's really bad. Like it's, we're running campaigns that two quarters earlier were doing great. And, you know, fast forward two quarters and, and nothing's meeting its target. And it's just bad news, bad news, bad news. And so it, when I get in these situations, um, I tend to look for the bright spots. So you're trying to look for, okay, I know there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't work and I'm, I might need to kill some of that stuff, but I wonder what is actually working. So I'm digging through the numbers, looking for the good news and there isn't very much. And finally, I get to this bit when I'm looking at the performance of my inside sales team. And the way all my campaigns work is I'm driving these leads and the lead get passed to inside sales. And what inside sales does is they try to get the lead on the phone, qualify them a little bit, and then set up a meeting for the sales rep to go in and do a face-to-face -face meeting. So I've got six inside sales reps, I think, maybe eight. I can't remember how many there were. And anyways, they all kind of performance-wise, they're all sort of hitting about the same numbers except for one. I got one guy and he's killing it. So he's booking double the number of appointments of everybody else and, and he's crushing it. And I'm like, well, isn't that weird? I got to go down and see, meet this guy and find out what's going on. So I go down there to meet the dude and, and I show up at like nine in the morning and the whole team's there except that guy. And, and so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to sit in. And so I introduce myself to the people. I'm like, hey, I'm new here. I'm just going to sit in and listen on calls. They're like, yeah, sure. So we're listening to the calls and the calls are bad. So the way all my campaigns worked is we were selling to uh, senior people in IT. So CIO, head of IT, VP IT. So, we're, so the way it works is we generate this lead by creating some content or running some events or whatever. And then the inside sales rep tries to get that person on the phone. So in all the conversations I had, they went like this. The inside sales rep calls in, IT person gets on the phone and they're like, 
And they're like, hey, you know, we're, we're Siebel, we sell this customer relationship management software, and it's really good for tracking your pipeline and your leads and getting more predictable on revenue, blah, blah, blah. And the IT manager is like, look, just don't even talk to me. I just got my budget slashed by half. Like, don't you watch TV? The economy is shit. I have no budget. Go away. Stop talking to me. <laughs> end of conversation. So I sit in for like a couple of hours and everybody we managed to get on the phone, it's the same conversation, same conversation. So I'm like, woof, this is bad. <laughs> I wonder what my other guy does, right? So, so dude comes rolling in, my good guy, he comes rolling in and he's like, hey, and he looks like he's hung over. <laughs> like, in fact, I, I, he's a little disheveled and it it's California. I, I got a feeling maybe he's high. So he, so he comes in, he, he sits down, he puts his feet on the desk. He's like, yo, I'm like, oh my God, this is my, this is my superstar guy. And I'm like, Hey, I'm April. I'm new. I just want to listen to some calls. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So we get in on the phone and he, this guy's hilarious. So he phones in to the CIO and he says, Hey, how's things going? Probably shit. Right. CIO goes, yes, yeah, and they do like ten minute conversation on. But your budgets got cut. Yeah, my budgets got cut. <laughs> and, like, dude, and I'm like, what is this guy doing? How does he possibly book a meeting with this line of questioning? And and the IT and so then then he says, look, but your budget's been cut. IT guy goes, yeah, budget's budget been cut, man. I can't buy anything. Can't buy anything from guys like you. I just shouldn't even be talking to you. He says, yeah, I know. Bet your budget went to someone else, right? Probably the head of sales. Head of sales probably got your budget. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, they get they get all the money. They get all the money. So yeah, who's your head of sales, by the way? And then he gets the name of the head of sales, and he's like, "You mind transferring me over? I'm going to talk to that guy. Like, I, you know, I feel sorry for you, dude. But yeah, yeah bring me over to the head of sales. I got to tell him what great work you're doing over here, and uh, maybe maybe I get some of that budget back for you. All right. So then he gets transferred over to the head of sales. Then he gets the head of sales, and he's like a new guy, like a totally different guy gets the head of sales on it. He's like, he's like, Hey, economy's bad, right? I bet you're under a lot of pressure to meet your sales number. Head of sales is like, Oh yeah, you have no idea. You know what you need? You need better visibility in your pipeline. And he starts pitching them CRM, right? Pipeline funnel analysis and how you're going to be able to insight in your funnel, whatever. You know what you guys need? You guys need CRM. I can't believe you're not running CRM. This is back in the days when people didn't have CRM. I can't believe you don't have any CRM or whatever, whatever. I send my guy in there and he'll show you how this works. And by the way, we're working with four companies that look just like you. And the minute they start using our stuff, their revenue goes up 30%. Why don't you talk to my guy? And I said, okay, that sounds good. Okay, good. Book the appointment. Mm. Now, let that sink in for a minute. I got... 800 million revenue. I have a giant team of people. I have a huge marketing machine aimed at CIOs. And what I just learned is that maybe I'm selling to the wrong person. Do I have an email list of VPs of marketing or VPs of sales? No. Do I have content that's appropriate for a VP sales? No. Do I have any persona work, anything for VP sales? No. Do I have call scripts? Do I, am I going to any shows where I get in front of these people? No, 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 no. My entire marketing engine is oriented towards possibly the wrong person. <laughs> it's a disaster. So, so anyways, then I got to go back in and talk to my boss, right? So, you know, so we have the meeting and we, we were going around doing this right. meeting like we always do. Oh, hey, you know, here's the results. And so, so I flop up my results and then, and then I'm like, and the guy's like, the guy's like, so it looks like everything's still crap. And I'm like, yeah, well, good news, bad news. <laughs> <laughs> bad news is everything's crap. Good news is I got an idea why. So then I show him a whole bunch of data. And it turns out that what the data shows it backs up what I heard from the dude in the call center is, is like basically the, the, the money is shifted over to the line of business from IT and we're going to have to figure out how to sell to the line of business. And, and maybe the glory days of us selling IT are, you know, coming to the beginning of the end here. And, and the look on my boss's face, Bruce, he's looking at me like, uh... <laughs> I mean, was this a big boat to turn? And, and in fact, I don't think we had enough ocean to turn it, to tell you the truth. Like, so, you know, I immediately went back and started trying to run experiments on 
well, we're going to need to build a list. We're going to need to run campaigns. We're going to need to go do some shows. So I canceled a bunch of things and I started doing a bunch of other things. But I'm telling you, I, I got massive pushback from everyone in the organization yeah. because that was a bit of customer insight that I was kind of on the leading edge of, or actually my guy inside sales was on the leading edge of. And it was, it, it I don't think I successfully convinced anybody that that shift was going to happen fast and going to be devastating for the business. And so I, I ended up leaving, but I don't even know how I got on this story. But the, the, the point of this story is that, you know, again, it's this customer insight thing. Like, you know, sometimes there's this easy answer, which is the economy's crap and it's crap. But, you know, I kind of had this itchy feeling like, you know, I had just come from a company where we were growing gangbusters and we didn't have that problem at all. But you know what? We sold to IT and the line of business together. And so that also gave me a clue. Like maybe that's why things are different over here because they're, you know, selling in a different way than we were. And so I think whenever you get that kind of scratchy feeling, like maybe there's something going on here that I don't know, you got to dig for it. It's also an example of, you know, again, this qualitative and quantitative and doing the work and bringing those things together is important. I never would have known, like just looking at the numbers didn't tell me what was going on. And so it wasn't until I got to listen to a bunch of customer conversations where I was like, oh, this is actually what's happening. And it's, it's big. The other thing is that, you know, there's this, this idea that you need to you need to constantly be on the lookout for how things are changing and be ready to challenge even your most closely held assumptions. Like here's who we sell to <laughs> markets change and things change. And when they do, we often have to react to that much closer, much faster than what we're really comfortable with. So that's that. So how do you develop that intuition over time to know when it might be some external factor, when, it, when, when to start digging and when to look? Do you have any tips for anyone on that? Well, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a cop out to, to fall back on external factors. I mean, not that external factors aren't important, but you, you know, like in that case, I just felt like I can't go and tell Bruce every two weeks, like everything's crap and it's out of my control. Sorry. <laughs> Don't think that would fly. Like, don't, don't right. think that would fly. <laughs> a boss doesn't want to hear that. Sorry, it's out of my control. Right. And so, you know, I, you know, so there's that. Um, but I think that, I think that you got to assume that there's a whole bunch of things that are under your control. And so, you know, if one segment stops buying, there's another segment that will, if, you know, if your competitive landscape changes, that will advantage some companies and disadvantage others. And so how do you make sure it's to your advantage? If you have channels that worked really well, and now they're getting soft, you got to go out and find some new channels. And so I think you just always have to be digging and it's kind of a, it's kind of irrelevant. The stuff that you can't control is kind of irrelevant. It's, it's sort of, it's there and it's just part of the makeup of the, the, you know, multiple levels of constraints that you have to work around is sometimes the economy's crap. We still got to sell stuff. <laughs> we still got to sell stuff. So how are we going to sell in a crappy economy? Well, there's, you know, there's lots of stuff you can do in a crappy economy to sell stuff and certain things sell better in a crappy economy than other things and might cause you to shift your value proposition. But you know, you can't just say, well, economy's crap. That's it. Shift all the targets. <laughs> you might do that too. But it shouldn't be the first thing you do. Yeah, no. I, I, again, it kind of seems like that's the easy thing to think and say versus you know digging in and doing a bit of the hard. Yeah, work. it's a cop out. Yeah. It's a cop out. I mean, it sucks. Like, trust me, I've been through two, three market downturns now, and when it happens, it's terrible. But it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. And in fact, it, it gives you an opportunity to really tighten up what you're doing when things get slow. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. So you are very persuasive, but you couldn't you weren't able to persuade everyone on doing this massive shift. I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Well, you know, big, big companies are different, right? Like, like this is, this is one of the things that startups have a, one of the places where startups have a real advantage over big companies. Like just the cycles on everything are so much longer at a big company. Like, 
if I wanted to, you know, I had budgets that were approved at the beginning of the year where, you know, a plan had to be put together. If I wanted to mid mid year do a major change in that budget, like I'm going to take a couple million bucks out of trade shows and put them into something else. And I had to go all the way up the chain of approvals to do that. And, you know, in a $2 billion revenue company, like even just that going up the chain of approvals was like a two month process. You know, so a startup can kind of have a flash of this insight and react really quickly. Whereas a bigger company has so many interdependencies, you can't flop around like a fish. I mean, you, you again, it's a, it's a big boat and it takes a lot of ocean to turn it. So you have to kind of be patient and you have to work away at it. You got to come with your numbers. You have to be persistent and, and you got to hope that you get it done in time, but it's very hard to shift something really big quickly at a big company. Now, the flip side of that is if you're a big company selling to big companies, I mean, they don't shift all that fast either. So you generally have enough runway that you can get it done because your customers can't change that fast either. But in this particular case where it was budget getting slashed in one place and moving around another place, a lot of these companies were in big trouble and we're being forced to react really quickly. And so, and, and we, until our stock started taking a beating because we weren't meeting our number, we were slow to react because people were a bit skeptical. I mean, they were kind of like, well, we're, we still seem to be selling okay. Is this really an emergency? And so it, it took a few quarters before I think people sort of stepped back and said, whoa, this is actually a crisis. And we need to react to it. And then, you know, and that's the first step. Then you need to actually react. And again, if it's a big company with thousands of employees, it takes a long time to do it. So it's not just a matter of being persuasive. It's working the system to make it happen. Did they eventually switch around and target head of sales? Yeah, you know, they changed a lot of things. But I'll put it this way. When when Siebel acquired us, the stock was trading at around 200 bucks a share and uh, and when I left, it was trading at 15 and they were eventually acquired by Oracle for about eight and a half or something. So did they fix that shit? No, <laughs> I think there was a lot of things. There were other things happening as well. It was not the only no. thing happening at Siebel. But, but when um, it comes to CRM. Yeah, it was it, that was a, that was a company that was dealing with a lot of market shift all at once. Like competitive landscape was changing. Their big buyers were changing. How people wanted to do software was changing. Like everything was changing. And I think it would have been difficult for that company to go back into growth mode under any circumstance. Right. That makes, that makes sense. And yeah, that's why, you know, maybe some people heard of Salesforce um, and maybe not so much uh, Siebel, but it is hard to deal with. It is hard to deal with change. You said something in that story that was really good. And I wanted to bring it out. I think during the beginning, when you first kind of got there, when your first meeting, you kind of said, you know what, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. I think that's such a powerful statement for anyone, whether it's to your boss or to your board, um, just to be able to say that, you know what, I don't know, and I'll figure it out. And that seems like a very April thing to say. Yeah, well, you know what, this is like, this is what you get, again, this is one of the the lessons of old age. (laughs) Listen to your granny here, people. When I was starting out, I thought that I was supposed to know everything. So I was, you know, I was uh, hesitant to tell people when I didn't know stuff because, you know, particularly because I was not trained as a marketer. Like I kind of fell into marketing. I actually have a degree in systems design engineering. But so at the beginning, I thought, ooh, this is some like marketing jutsu that marketers know and I don't. And but after a few years, I got to the point where I was like, God, nobody knows anything. Nobody knows a thing. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm clueless, but so is everyone else. And so I got more comfortable with saying, here's what I know and here's what I don't know. But, and and the other thing that I got really strict on is, look, I can't know everything, but there are some things that I should know deeply And so I'm going to focus on the things that I have control over and the things that I can know and really have my arms around that. And then the stuff we don't know, the stuff we don't know, because it's unknowable, right? Like, like the economy, like, I'm not not in charge of the economy, but I am in charge of 
a deep understanding of my customers and how they behave and how they buy and what they worry about and all that stuff. So I'm going to be deeply in charge of that. I'm going to be deeply in charge of all the metrics around my marketing and sales funnel so that I have an early warning when things are going slow and I can see, oh, look, you know, we look like maybe we're not making our targets here. Like that was one of the things that blew me away in that Siebel story is that like I inherited this group and this bunch of stuff that was running and it had been bad for a couple quarters and there had been, as far as I could tell, no adjustments made. And so I thought, well, what the heck? Like, are you just looking at these numbers every month and shrugging? <laughs> like more investigation required. So I don't know, like, uh, you know, I never talked to the person that ran the thing before me. So who knows what was going on? And maybe they had thrown it, you know, maybe they were in, on this path to trying to convince people to do different things and were, you know, slow to get anybody to act too. Who knows? Yeah, that can happen as well. So just to sum that whole story up. So April comes in to like an almost a billion dollar revenue company, a massive marketing machine that's executed Two, two million, million, two billion, billion revenue. revenue. My slice, my slice was eight hundred million. million. Can you believe that? So, so big. Two, two billion dollars <laughs> in revenue. You're running eight hundred million dollars in revenue. Huge marketing machine. Let's that was executing well, and you spent a couple of hours yeah. listening to sales conversations and figured out that that whole thing might be wrong now. And maybe it wasn't wrong before, but it was wrong now. Yeah. Well, it was getting wrong is the thing, right? Like, like, you don't, you don't get to go in and say everything we're doing is wrong. Like, I mean, obviously some things were still working. We were still making revenue. We were still doing whatever, but there was a slice of it, right? Like what, what was there was this big clue you know, it was the big, Oh shit clue. Like, Oh dear. <laughs> Here's the thing where we were wrong. Like we had an assumption and we and we're potentially wrong and and then you get into the what if scenario well, what if we're really wrong what if we wanted to actually capture that demand properly how would we run things well completely different what would we do completely different thing like literally i, I remember going home and and you know the the gravity of what i heard i think didn't hit me until like the next day and you know i went home and i was thinking about it when i was falling asleep and i was like wow like that's so funny what that guy did. He sold to the sales department. What if all the sales departments are like that? Man, what if, what if, what if? And then they're like, oh, this is a disaster. Oh, the what if game. The what if game's a dangerous game. Yeah, super, super, like super terrifying insight. Sometimes you get those and you're like, oh. So how yeah. do you, you know, you're really good at recognizing that. And it, it's really hard, especially when you're coming in new. So you didn't have any as much, in, you know, entrenched opinions and ego involved in the process, which is great um, for you to come in. But do you have any tips with, when it's been yourself who has the entrenched opinions or just helping people like kind of break through that barrier. Cause that can be tough. And I know a lot of people have trouble with that. Yeah. You know, you got it. Like, so you have to sort of trust what you're hearing and then you got to trust your data. So like, you know, it, it, I could see a situation where you would go in and you would hear that guy on the phone and you'd say, look, that's, that's not, that. that's just an outlier. That doesn't mean anything. That's just a random piece of data. And, and, you know, that doesn't work like that all the time. So what I'm hearing here, I can ignore it because it's noise. But what you have to do is have an open enough mind to say, Ooh, what if, like, what if that's actually happening? And then go check it out. So, you know, so, so I go and I, you know, in that case I go and I, and I, pull all the stuff and say, well, is that where that, like are all the appointments he's booking look like that? And what percentage of our pipeline actually involves a VP sales as opposed to a CIO? And then you pull the data and then you got to be kind of, kind of willing to say, well, the data doesn't lie here. I had this bit of insight and now I got this data that backs it up and I got to just let some stuff go. Now it's easier for me. I'm new guy in town, right? I show up, I'm, I'm brand new. It wasn't my marketing plan and all this stuff. I didn't, I wasn't married to it. So it's easier for me to show up and say, Oh, gee, Definitely. you know, the cheese has moved. Sorry, people. But, um, it's harder when you've been running stuff and then stuff goes soft. It's harder to say, well, you know, it used to work. It doesn't work now. And we're going to have to make some changes and change things up. 
So, you know, in terms of your own stuff, you have to keep your own sense of skepticism and not take yourself too seriously and be like, well, you know, we got some genius stuff working now, but nothing lasts forever. And when it doesn't work anymore, we got to get ready to move. If you're trying to convince other people, it's harder. And you generally have to, you have to do it with numbers and evidence. And sometimes the evidence it involves qualitative stuff like, you know, me sitting in on the guy's phone calls, you know, I could record those and have people listen to it. And in fact, I did at one point say like, Bruce, you got to listen to this. Like, you know, this is, this is not going down in, in inside sales the way you think it is right now. So you play him recordings of the conversations. Yeah, I did. I Do you did. have any tips for keeping an open mind when it's your own thing? Like, question or a gut check or just something that you do? Because everyone's biased about their own babies or things they're married to. Oh, everybody's super biased about it. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I think that's just something you have to be able to sit back and again, not take yourself too seriously. Like I think senior marketers automatically develop that because you, you, you know, when you do your first, like, like I've done like seven, eight startups where I've been head of marketing and the first one I did was super successful and then we got acquired and then I ran marketing at the acquired company for a bunch of years. We did all this hot shit stuff. And, you know, I came out of that one thinking, I know how to do this. This isn't that hard. Like I know how to run the playbook here. And then I went and got my next job and different market, different product, different price point, different sales, different uh, sales process. And none of my genius stuff worked at the second one. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> all that stuff where I thought I was so hot stuff. And so it's unfortunate because right now, you know, you go on the Internet and you you read a lot of stuff that's written. And, you know, and I think it's good for people to write out this stuff. But a lot of the stuff that's written, you know, sounds like me in my first job where it's like, look, this is how you drive traffic. Look, this is how you, you know get a million dollars worth of whatever. This is how you build a $5 million business. Like they say it, like there's a right and wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I remember when I was like that. (laughs) (laughs) But what you learn when you're more senior is, you know, the, the answer to everything is, I don't know. It depends. Maybe yes, maybe no. Let's try some stuff out. Like, and so you get better at that as you go along. And then, you know, as you go along, you also get better at, you know, not smoking your own marketing where, you you know, you can look at it and say, okay, like this stuff is working, but it's not because I'm a super genius and whatever, whatever. It's working because it works right now. And a month from now, it may not be working. And we have to be prepared to kill that baby if we got to you know, but let's whoop it up now, but let's not forget that all of this is temporary and soon we'll be doing something else. So we have to stay a little paranoid and keep our wits about us and not get too caught up in how awesome we are when things are going good. Yes. I think those are some pearls, pearls of wisdom. I think the power of just saying, I don't know, it depends. It is huge. Circling back to the campaign that shall not be named, uh, I just I know we went into it, like another topic and it was just so good, but I just wanted to sum this up. So you drove, you're in Michigan. You happened to be there. You drove around. You didn't call and try to set up an interview time beforehand. You just showed up. Well, you, no, because these guys these guys wouldn't take my call. Like when we already knew that. Okay. So you call and you get Marjorie on the phone and she says, "Who are you? What do you What do you want to do? Like why do you want to talk to him?" <laughs> and her job is to like protect that guy from people like me. Okay. So. <laughs> So that was why my inside salespeople could never could never get these people on the phone. They had a gatekeeper. But if you showed up in person, Marjorie is beautiful. She's awesome. She's mean to people on the phone because she thinks you're some rotten salesperson. But I show up and I'm cute and I'm like I'm like, "Hey, um you know, so this is going to sound weird, but I'm from Canada and we run this little startup. We're not really a startup anymore, but okay. We run this startup and we're trying to understand more about manufacturing. And I know that blah, blah is the owner here. And I was wondering like, if he has 20 minutes today, I just happen to be driving by. And I was wondering if he could spend like 20 minutes with me and just give me some insight into how his business works. That's not a sales call. Marjorie is happy to let you in. 
then, right? Mm-hmm. And half the time you hang around long enough and the dude comes out, what's going on out here, right? You're like, hey, you know, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm honest. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to sell you stuff, but right now I'm not selling you anything. And, and it turns out all these people are lovely, like, and they're all like lovely. But what they, you know, but what you can't do is just cold call in there. Like I, like I had zero luck cold calling into these folks, which also, you know, again, fed into this idea for the campaign was we're going to do this funny icebreaker thing. And that, and that's going to give us a chance that the guy, you know, and then we're going to call right when we send the facts, right when we know the guy is reading it and laughing, we're going to call and say, He's actually reading a fax from us right now and he's probably laughing. Could you put us through? You know, and that would be enough to not every time, but most of the time get us in. Yeah. To at least start a conversation. That was our big problem with those. If you have a copy of that campaign, like a, a, a scan of that or a picture of that, you should send that and I'll include that in the show notes. Oh yeah, it was it was stupid. I should I should call my old Marketo rep and see if she's got a she's got a copy of it kicking around somewhere. We spent we had such a good time with that one. We were like laughing our heads off all the time. We we're like, this is literally the dumbest thing. And it worked. <laughs> and it worked. That's a, that's the thing. It works. Uh it worked. So, like, you know, a lot of people have trouble, you know, even if they make an email instead of interviews with customers and things like that, have trouble even figuring out who to talk to. Will they annoy them by sending an email? You couldn't send them an email. You showed up. You understood, you know, how to kind of play that role and you went and did it. And you found a way, found an untapped acquisition channel completely and made millions of dollars off of that. So I think that's a huge yeah. And, and again, you know, like it w- wouldn't work anywhere else, not particularly scalable. Like, you know, I, you know, and, and, and we were all saying, look, we're not going to be sending faxes forever. Right. We're going to get away with this like once. <laughs> the process to go and talk to people and figure out the next campaign that shall not be named. That would, that's what you've done again. I kept saying saying to the team, and this is really grim, right? But I kept saying to the team, I was like, look, we just have to run this for like, we'll run it for like a few quarters, like a year or so. And then again, all these guys are old and they'll retire. (laughs) (laughs) Then we'll start dealing with people that read emails and everything will be fine. It's like people in New York, because the rental market's so crazy. People are literally waiting for people to die to get apartments. That's what it reminds me of. I mean, it's it's horrible. Uh, Yeah, I lived in in New York. I can tell you stories. Yeah, it's terrible. So just to wrap this up, because I know we both have to go and we are on the longer side, but I love talking to you and I know how much value everyone will get from this. When you went to, you know, the campaign they knocked me in, you showed up, you knocked on doors, and you finally got in to see Joe Blow, owner. What kind any kind of questions that you asked, you mentioned, you know, you basically just asked, how do you find out about anything new? Any other questions that you really use again and again? Yeah. So that was kind of my, that was kind of my big one. Like my big one was, you know, so I often started by like, so the, the, the guys all want to give you a tour of the plant and the plants are super interesting. So we go on a tour of the plant. So we'd be chitty chatty while we're on the plant floor. Right. And so once you get on the plant floor, you could see what ERP they were running and any other software they were running, it was easy to see it on the plant floor. So you'd be pointing at a screen saying, hey, is that whatever? And when when did you guys buy that? Oh, and, and the answer was always, we bought it in Y2K because we were worried about Y2K. Oh <laughs> That's literally always the answer. And yeah. And, and I'm like, wow, like, did you ever like, do you ever think about updating? Like that stuff's getting pretty old now, you know? And, and they were like, oh, you know, it was such a pain to implement. And, you know, we were like, really couldn't imagine us upgrading. And a lot of them would actually say, look, you know what? I'm getting old. The new guy is going to do that. The new guy is going to take that on. Like in five years when I'm retired, you know, someone else is going to take this over and that's going to be their problem. It's too late for this old dog to learn any new tricks. You got a lot of that. So it was more just kind of like getting them talking, but getting them talking around, you know, Hey, you, you put this stuff in, how did that happen? Right. And then, and then you would say, well, Hey, you know, like the new stuff is, is not nearly as hard to implement as that stuff would have been in, in 99 when you implemented it. Like, have you ever seen any new stuff? No. Right. Well, do you ever like go to a trade show or anything? Like, how do you stay on top of this stuff? No. Right. And then you'd get into that conversation, but it has to be kind of natural with the flow of the conversation because, you know, they got to get something out of it too. And a lot of the, you know, it was fun for me. We go around and do a tour of these plants. They're all really interesting. And 
they're all a little bit different, but they're all kind of the same as well. And so by the time you get on the third one, you feel kind of smart that you're like, hey, your plastic injection bully machine looks different than the dude up the road. And then they get laughing. It's not the actual questions. It's more like the flow. You're just trying to get into their heads around you know, talking about a purchase they did make and how did that happen? And so if they were to make another purchase, how on earth was that going to happen? And, and then, you know, once you get them talking, you could get really specific, like you never go to a trade show, like you never go to a trade show. Do you ever go to like, you know, do you belong to industry association or anything? Do those guys ever get together and talk about stuff? And, you know, you're just having that conversation or like you're in the guy's office and it's easy enough to look around and say, oh, hey, you subscribe to the whatever, you know, lots of them have the local newspaper. You're like, hey, you read the local newspaper, you subscribe to anything else? You, you get any like manufacturing magazines or anything and you'd list a few and just get them talking. After you've opened them up first. I think that's key. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, you can't just walk in and say, "Hi, I'm April, and we're just, I'm going to give you this survey only with me in your face." Yes, hi, nice <laughs> to meet you. Do, you. do you read manufacturing magazines? Do you go to trade shows? Yeah, exactly. Like that's the why nobody fills out a survey. It's boring and stupid. When you do it in person, you can open me, people right? up and care about the details and. You know, when people see the attention yeah. somewhat. Everybody genuine. wants to give you a tour and the tour, everybody wants to give you a tour and the tour is fun. So like, let's go on the tour. Cause then now we're on the tour and we're having, we're, we're both having some fun and then I can bug you with all my questions. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great. And you can replicate that not quite the same way, but just even when you're talking to people doing customer interviews, just ask them like, what are you guys up to these days? What are you working on? Tell me about you. Like those can be somewhat of a facility. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't like, again, it's not, it's not like purely chit chat, you know, how's your life, but people like talking about their frustrations to folks at software companies because they, they have this sneaky hope that software companies can fix them. And so you get folks on the phone and again, you're doing this, Hey, could you help me out? Sort of thing. Like, I just kind of want to know, like, how do you do this? Or when you do this, is that fun or not fun? (laughs) You know, and, you know, if, if you've got like in this process that you do, what would you say is the most frustrating thing? Like people like customers are, are really deep experts on pain and problems, right? So getting them started around pain and problems is usually a good place to start. No, I think, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. So just to wrap this up, you've been so full of what mining for diamonds here today of insight. Is there one question? that you've never been asked, but you think people should ask you? I'm really curious what your answer to this. I wish I, wish I had a really sippy answer for it this. Is. And I don't, you know, I wish people, I wish people asked me more about, again, this customer insight stuff. I wish people asked me more about, you know, how to do customer discovery. I wish people asked me more about that. They don't. They just kind of say, oh, yeah, we're just going to do a survey and it'll be fine. But I think there's an art. There is a real art and skill to a good customer discovery meeting, like being able to go in and have a conversation with a prospect without selling is actually really hard. And when I started doing it, I was really bad at it. (laughs) And now now I think I'm quite good. Now I think I'm the master of not selling when it's not time to sell and just going in and getting people yakking. I think I'm pretty good at it now, but it, it was a developed skill. I was not born with that. I had to learn how to not sell. And there, you can't really learn how to do it without just repetition and doing it over and over again and trying to hold yourself to, I'm just trying to understand these people better. I am not trying to close a deal here because if the minute I try to close a deal, they're going to shut down. I'm going to learn nothing. And so there's, there's discipline around there. There's, you know, there's things you can do to sort of make a conversation go the way it should go. But yeah, I wish I, I wish I got more questions around that. And people almost never ask me that. Instead, they come in and they say, Hey, April, you're in marketing. Should I do Facebook ads? (laughs) People love to ask about Google solvable problems. Oh God, I, I I hope nobody ever asked me that again. We're like, hey, how should I market my startup? How do I, I'm like, how do I, I don't know. <laughs> Are we done? Is this coffee meeting yes, done now? It's like you can weave if you can answer those questions in a coffee meeting, you would literally be a billionaire. Like, yeah. Uh, no, I yeah, no, I love that. And totally. April, as you can tell, April is so easy to talk to. 
So in April, I have trouble believing that you were not always good at this, but I will take you at your word. So if April, and April's fantastic at just getting people to talk and open up. So she had to learn that skill, like, and it feels so innate to her. Like anyone can learn. It just takes time. Yeah, yeah. I'm an engineer. If I can do it, you can do it. You, April can do it. You can do it. I think it's a little, it's a little, it's a little high of a bar. April's pretty awesome. But she's, I would never have guessed the moral of the story that April had trouble, like, did not, was not a natural skill to her. So it can be developed. I would never have guessed that because you were yes. so good. That might be a little high of, bar, high of a bar for everyone, I will say. If April can do it. Anyone can do it. I think that's, that's a little, that's a little, that's a pretty high bar. But it's a developed skill and you are so good at it that I would never have guessed that. So it can be learned. Thank you so much for being on here today and chit-chatting with me. I think the audience is really going to love it. Okay. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks.